This message by Jeff Perswell, titled "The Holy Spirit and Worship," is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the fourth main session at our 2004 Worship God Conference. Jeff is the Dean of Academic and Student Affairs for the Pastors College of Sovereign Grace Ministries and serves on the pastoral team of Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I'd like to read from a couple of texts.、Uh, normally, I, I prefer to speak from just one text, but I'm going to read a couple, and then、uh, we're going to be moving around a little bit this morning、uh, in our Bibles. But I want to begin by reading a couple of texts from these monumental chapters in. The book of John. I'm going to be re- begin reading in chapter 14, verse 16, and then we'll skip over to chapter 16. But chapter 14, verse 16. This is what Holy Scripture says. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you. Another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans; I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, "Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world?" Jesus answered him, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and make our home with him." Now look over in chapter sixteen. Chapter sixteen, verse five. But now I am going to Him who sent me, and none of you asks me, "Where are you going?" But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth: it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me, see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you, you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you. The things that are to come, He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I say that He will take what is Mine 
and declare it to you. Pray with me if you would. Father, we we revel in being able to call you Father. We revel in being able to stand here and sing to you. Not empty words, not emotional expressions, but words that are rich and full of meaning and experiential reality for us as your children. Thank you. Lord, that there is such a thing as a worship conference. That worship is an activity you have invited us to do. Lord, thank you now that we gather around your word. Thank you, Lord, that we continue now our worship as we listen to what you would say through your word. So, Lord, I pray that you would do just that. Speak to us. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from thy law. Make us more intelligent, passionate, faithful worshipers of you. I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I had to take my glasses off to read. Many of us, all of us who wear glasses are part of a fraternity. Um, All of us share a common experience. All of us share a common story. Mine goes like this. It's 1991. I was driving to the Atlanta airport one night. And it was one of these nights that is soupy southern nights. You know, it's just, it's too warm to snow. It's too cold to go out in short sleeves. It's just messy. And I'm driving to, to the airport and, and it's, it's particularly, particularly hard to drive that night. I, I remember it seemed, you know, it was foggy. It was misty. It wasn't really raining. It was misty. It's one of those nights that your, your windshield wipers don't really work and your defroster doesn't really work and you just think, can't they get the technology right? And so you're driving. And, and as I got to the airport, I, I, it's a true story. Yeah, coming up to the Atlanta airport, which is a massive airport, and there's all these signs. And I remember just sort of bending down, you know, the, the part of my windshield that had been defrosted was low. And so I'm bending down, looking up. Trying to discern all the, you know, these massive signs, you know, trying to distinguish between, you know, departing passengers and arriving passengers, ticketing and baggage claim, you know, short-term parking and long-term parking. And as I'm peering out through my windshield, moving more, more and more slowly, trying to get closer to the signs that I can see, all of a sudden I find myself in the median between the two driveways and I slam on my brakes just short of running into a 16-inch diameter hole that's holding up all these signs. <laughs> now, this incident prompted me to go to the eye doctor. I knew it wasn't my eyes, though. I mean, I, 
I had 2010 vision the last time I had been examined. It's probably about sixth grade. And uh, I took great pride in that 2010 vision. I was the only member of my family who didn't wear glasses. So I was just special. And, uh, well, as it turns out, the eye doctor said, you need glasses. And so I humbled myself and said, all right, I'll get glasses. And I'll never forget putting on those glasses the very first time. I was in Dr. Reagan's office in Decatur, Georgia, and I looked out the window. And this was my very first thought. Those trees have leaves. <laughs> Can anyone relate to that? Yeah, everyone has. Everyone has that. We are a brotherhood. We are a fellowship. Everyone has a story like that. I, I didn't realize that trees had ceased to have leaves for me. Uh, they had become, I knew that they were there. I guess my brain sort of filled in that data. But I, they were really green blobs to me. Uh, more impressionistic, I guess. And, um, but now I could see leaves. I could discern their texture. I could see the edges. I, I specifically remember driving home that day thinking, it is beautiful outside. <laughs> the clarity of vision that those glasses brought me gave me a new appreciation for the world around me. And when it comes to worship, our topic this morning is one that requires, that especially requires, a similar clarity of vision. And one that so often, I'm afraid, is accompanied by a lack of clarity. Uh, Bob asked me to speak on the Holy Spirit and worship. As he said, and in the church over the last 30 years, few topics have generated as much interest as the Holy Spirit. Few topics have, have produced a, as wide a spectrum of beliefs as the Holy Spirit. Few topics are the way in which people hold their views on this topic. Few topics have generated as much division in the body of Christ as the Holy Spirit. And then when you combine that with worship, I mean, the uproar over worship and the worship wars, I thought, well, you know, Bob, I'm not sure you could have given me a topic that is more, has more potential for disagreement or that is more volatile. The Holy Spirit and worship. But for all believers, and especially worship leaders, those involved in leading people in the worship of God, this is a critical question. What is the role of the Holy Spirit in worship. What does he do in worship anyway? Now, the way we answer that question is going to determine not only how we understand the Spirit's work, but it is going to determine how we cooperate with that work. It's going to determine how we honor that work. It's going to determine how we benefit from that work especially in our worship gathering. So it is a critical question. And while the work of the Holy Spirit in Scripture is broad, especially in the New Testament, the New Testament's testimony to the, what the Spirit does is, is vast, it is multifaceted, it is deep and wide, um, the text that I just read I do think will provide us a helpful framework for understanding the role of the Spirit. Uh, and that I think this framework will help us benefit from the work of the Spirit in our corporate worship. It will help us honor the work of the Spirit. It will help us uh, rejoice in the work of the Spirit. And I also think for worship leaders, this will help provide sort of a diagnostic test 
for our leadership of corporate worship, sort of a guide to, to, to inform and guide us uh, in our planning, in our leading, in our writing, in our playing, in our singing. I think this framework will help us. And, and, this, and, and it's not only about, what I'm after is not only about proper understanding. What, ultimately, what I'm, what I'm desirous of is to encourage the work of the Spirit in our midst. To position us to pursue and to welcome and to benefit from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our corporate gatherings. So I want to argue this morning that the role of the Spirit in corporate worship is essentially the same as the role of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives. That's what I want to argue this morning. At its foundation, the work of the Spirit in our worship gatherings is fundamentally the same as the work of the Spirit in our lives. And I'd sum up that role, the Spirit's work, in this way. To reveal the reality and presence of Christ for the glory of Christ. If we were to sum up the role, I think we could sum it up this way. Many ways we could do it, but this is, this is what I'm going to going to attempt to reveal the reality and the presence of Christ for the glory of Christ. A key aspect to the Spirit's ministry is to make known the personal presence in and with the individual believer, in and with the gathered church, To make known the personal presence of the risen Christ. By the Spirit's work, Christ becomes real to us. His His presence becomes evident to us. That's what the Spirit does. And He does this in order that Christ may be known and honored and trusted and praised. That's why He does it. Christ may be known and honored, trusted, praised, marveled at, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. Now, the text that we read come from what is commonly known as the uh, Jesus' farewell discourse. Just prior to his death, Jesus goes to the upper room, he gathers his disciples, and uh, who John calls the ones that he loved. He loved them until the end in John chapter 13. And so he gathers them, and what he's doing, he's preparing them for his imminent departure. Now, you have to imagine the scene. The disciples are, are with the one who healed the sick. They are with the one who calmed the storms. They are with the one who cast out demons. They are with the one who raised the dead. This one who claimed that all the promises of the Old Testament were fulfilled in him. This one who claimed all All the Old Testament pointed to him. This one who claimed that the very reign of God was present in his person. That's who they were with. And he was their friend. They didn't just attend revivals with this guy. They they traveled with him and they ate with him and they sat around campfires with him and they took baths in rivers with him and they... They communed with him. They fellowshiped with him. They, They learned from him. They sat at his feet. He, they, they were his closest companions. His closest companions on earth. And now he's leaving. He's leaving them. And, and everything that, that, 
everything you had come to trust in and, and hope for and aspire to. He, he was in the embodiment of all those things. And now all, he's leaving. It's all going away. I mean, the very, I've, I've got a meaning of life now and it's him and he's leaving. And you're perplexed. You're, you're not only perplexed relationally, but you're perplexed theologically. Because he was going to establish the very reign of God in the world. All the promises of the Old Testament were coming to fruition in him. He was going to do what the Old Testament promised. He was going to punish the wicked. He was going to vindicate the righteous. He was going to bring the righteousness of God. In other words, he was going to set everything right. He was going to make everything right. He was going to balance all accounts. He was going to bring perfect justice. He was going to bring perfect peace. He was going to bring perfect well-being in the presence of God for all of God's people. This is, this is him. Now he's leaving. It does not compute. So there's relational confusion. There's theological confusion. Now, now Jesus is not unaware of this. He's conscious of it. He's conscious of the impact this would have and, and the confusion this was call, would cause. And so he, he comforts the disciples with really some of the most poignant and personal words in the New Testament. And his greatest consolation to them in this context is their greatest comfort was to be found in another helper. Look at chapter 14, verse 16. Chapter 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Another helper. The word another there, in in Greek there are two words for Another. It can be another of the same kind or another of a totally different kind. This is the, the, this is the word for another of the same kind. Jesus was not going to give them a different helper. He was going to give them another helper of the exact same kind. He was going to give them another helper who was just like Jesus. Jesus was their helper. Now, they're getting another helper just like him. Just like him. And look what this helper does. It's amazing. Verse 16, he will be with them forever. He won't leave them. Jesus is leaving. He won't. Verse 17, this one is with them and he will be in them. Verse 18, Jesus, though he's leaving, strangely enough, won't leave them as orphans, but will come to them. So in some way, Jesus is leaving, but he's going to come to them. Do you see? And and then verse 21, the one who loves Jesus, Jesus will love and manifest himself to this person. So again, Jesus is leaving, but the one who loves him, he's going to come and manifest himself to that person. Are you leaving or are you... It's kind of hard to work out if they were drawing charts. Are you leaving, coming? When are you coming back? How's it working? In verse 23, it it gets bigger. If anyone loves me and keeps my word, my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so not only will Jesus come, but the Father will come too. And we'll, and it won't just come and appear, we'll just be a cloud. We're going to make, we're going to make our home with that one. You see the idea? Jesus is leaving. But he's sending another helper to the disciples. And this helper will be just like Jesus. In other words, he will continue what Jesus has been doing. He will continue Jesus' ministry. That's the idea. In fact, in 
this helper, the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself will be present with him. And not only Jesus himself, Jesus and the Father will both be present with them. My goodness. That's that's consolation, isn't it? That's helpful. I could get my brain around it. Sitting in this room, that, that, that's very helpful. So, one of the fundamental roles, according to Jesus, of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the presence of Christ. To mediate, to convey, to mediate the, the presence of Christ to his people. Such that, though Jesus departed to be with the Father... To be in his, the glory with which he had before the world was, John 17. He was in some way, through this person, going to be with him. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now look quickly over at the second text we read, chapter 16, verse 12. Not only will the Spirit mediate the presence of Christ, so he's going to mediate the presence. He's going to make Jesus' presence real, even though he's leaving. Now look over at chapter 16, verse 12. That's not all he's doing. 16, verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so... He will not only mediate the presence of God, he will also declare to the disciples things concerning Christ. Their their knowledge of Christ, their understanding of Christ, their, their apprehension of Christ is going to continue to expand and grow through the ministry of this person. They're, they've been with Jesus for three years, but their learning is not over. They're going to become even more intimately equated with Jesus through this helper. And the purpose of all of it, chapter 16, verse 14, he will glorify me. Now, we've bitten off a mouthful in those verses, but what tremendous promises Jesus made to the disciples. What tremendous promises Jesus made to us. After his death and resurrection, Jesus would still be present with his, his disciples through the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit would make Jesus' presence known to them, assuring them that he is with them, intensifying their sense of intimacy with him. And not only that, he's going to clarify their understanding of him. They thought they knew him. Now they're really going to know him then. He's, he's going to clarify and expand the, their understanding. He's going to, to make them aware of all that Jesus is so that they would trust him to be all of that for them. Because we know their faith hasn't been perfected yet, has it? So the Holy Spirit's going to come and fully communicate all that Jesus is so that they would trust him to be precisely that for them. So he's going to Reveal the reality of Christ and the presence of Christ for the glory of Christ. All of this so that it was for the purpose so that Jesus would be made glorious 
in people's eyes so that he would be honored and marveled at and trusted and and treasured. That's what the Spirit, that's what the Spirit's work is fundamentally about. And this really just continues. This is one of the key themes, really, of the whole storyline of the Bible. There's, there's a storyline, there's a number of plots woven through, but God's presence is, is really is really one of the main one of the main ones. If you remember in the Garden of Eden, when God created the garden, he walked with Adam and Eve in perfect, unhindered fellowship. Didn't he? And what happened after the after the fall, after they sinned? They were banished from the garden. They were banished from the presence of God. So they no longer dwelt with God in perfect fellowship. And then as the Bible unfolds, we begin to see God making overtures to his people. And so he calls out Abraham and he makes him a promise. You are going to be you're going to be the father of many nations. And then the, patri- the story of the patriarchs unfold. And then God reveals himself to Moses. And Moses encounters the very presence of God in the burning bush. And then, after Moses delivers, or God delivers through Moses the people, what happens? God had said to Pharaoh, I want you to deliver, I want you to, let my pe- I want you to deliver my people so that they will come to me and worship me. And so, after the exodus, they come to Mount Sinai. And what happens? They experience the presence of God, don't they? It's on a mountain. There is thunder and lightning and earthquakes. And they say, thank you very much, Moses. You go to the mountain. We'll stay back here. Um, it was God's presence. And Moses went into God's presence. So God's presence was always something that, that was a blessing for his people. And then uh, when... When the people were wandering in in the in the wilderness, they were led by God's presence, and and then later instructions were given to God's people to make a tabernacle, and in that tabernacle would be the holy of holies, and in that holy of holies, God's manifest presence would dwell. Do you remember that? And do you know what they did when they set up camp? When they wandered around, they set up camp. They set up all around everyone's tents, and there was one tent in the middle. It was God's tent. God. God slept in a tent, right in the middle. And of course the temple was built, and the Holy of Holies was was instituted there. And at the dedication of that, God's presence comes down and fills, fills the temple. And of course the people fall and they sin, and what happens? Ezekiel sees this great vision, Ezekiel 8 through 11. He sees this vision, he's, he's in... He's in exile, but he sees a vision of Jerusalem. And what does he see? He sees the, the Spirit of God departing from the temple. It's God's judgment comes. God's departing. His presence is departing. The blessing of God's nearness, the blessing of God's presence, which had become part of the heritage of Israel, was departing. And so the people go into exile. Then they return. It's not quite like it was, though. People remember the old temple and they weep. But then... But then, something else happens. Jesus comes. And as John testifies in this very gospel, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh. And you know what it says? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word there is the word there literally means he, he, he set up a tent among us. 
The Word became flesh and pitched His tent among us. Just as in the Old Testament, God pitched His tent in the tabernacle. Well, now God was pitching another tent in the presence of His people. But this tent was flesh. And we beheld His glory, John says. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And now, this one who is embodying the very presence of God is leaving. But what does Jesus say? I'm leaving, but I'm sending you another. I'm sending you another. He's been with you. You know him. I presume that to be in the person of Jesus. But now he's going to be in you. And then what happens? Jesus leaves and Pentecost comes. And what happens? The Spirit falls. And as that is interpreted through the apostolic proclamation, we see that the new covenant is going to be marked by a far more broad, deep, extravagant experience of the presence of God. All will know Him from the least to the greatest. And then when you get to the end of the book, what's the end of the story? Well, they, you know the end of the chapter. Mark's going to be speaking about this tonight, the end of Revelation. They, they have no need for the sun to light the city of God. Why? Because God and the Lamb are there. And they will dwell in His presence forever. You know the shape of that holy city? It's a cube. It's only two cubes in the Bible. One was the Holy of Holies. The other is the New Jerusalem. God's presence with His people fully experienced. Now, helpful to know that, putting your Bible together, putting together the, the, the role of the Spirit. It's, it's much more than simply goosebumps. It's much more than simply excitement and exciting meetings. No, this is the very... In this stage of salvation history, the very presence of God, which was experienced in the Garden of Eden, will be fully experienced in the new heavens and the new earth, is now able to be experienced by the people of God through the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes real the presence of Jesus to His people. He makes it real. So that we'll glorify Him. So that we'll love Him and trust Him. What privileges we have as worshipers now. You should never say, you know what, boy, it really would have been great to live back in Abraham's time or live back in David's time. Wouldn't that have been great marching to the city of, to the house of God. No, no, no. That's not the Spirit's perspective. You could desire that if you want, but it's, it's, it's not the Scripture's perspective. The Scripture's perspective is look at Hebrews 12. They came to a mountain and thunder and lightning. We come to Mount Zion. <laughs> we come to God. We join in with those worshiping now in heaven. 
spirits of men made perfect. Oh, worship leaders in the new covenant, (laughs) what a privilege you have. And it's the spirit that helps make that real. It's the spirit that, that makes that a reality. Do you know that about your worship participating? Do you know that about your church? Do you know that about your corporate gatherings, your worship gatherings? Do you realize that your church is one visible manifestation of the entire people of God for all time, a part of the heavenly throng that is even now worshiping God before the throne? And so when we start up, say, on a Sunday morning, we are not really beginning, we are joining in with ceaseless worship that takes place before the throne. Do you know that? Or are you more preoccupied with the mix or the feedback? That's the reality of New Covenant worship. It is worship in God's very presence. Now, we can... Don't misunderstand. We can enter into God's presence alone in your room. God is always present, as a matter of fact. He is omnipresent. He is present at all places, at all times, with all of his being. I don't understand that, but that's a definition. Uh, But he is especially present when his people gather for worship. He is always present everywhere in the world to govern and preserve and sustain. He is graciously present among his people, the church, to reveal and bless. It's the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. The Spirit does many things. Scripture speaks of many wonderful roles of the Spirit. He is the seal. He is God's mark of ownership Upon us, marking us out as the people of God. He is the, the down payment of our inheritance, guaranteeing the future reception of all the spiritual blessings that we have received in Christ in the heavenly places. He is the first fruits, Romans 8, meaning the first part of the crop that guarantees the fullness of the harvest that is to come when our bodies are glorified. He transforms us. He sanctifies us. He does many, many things, but one thing He does. That's fundamental. And one thing that I think will serve us as those who participate in the worship of God, one thing is fundamental to reveal the reality and presence of Christ for the glory of Christ. He's come to exalt the Savior by making the Savior known and real. What a, what an amazing ministry. What an amazing ministry. Now, let's apply this more specifically to worship. How does the Holy Spirit reveal the reality and presence of Christ for the glory of Christ? How does he exalt Jesus by helping people understand him, know him, experience his nearness? How does he do it? I want to briefly mention three ways that we can expect Him to do this in our midst. Three ways we can expect Him to do this 
Three ways we should expect Him to do this in our corporate worship, in our gatherings, in our lives. Number one, illumination. Illumination. One of the primary ways in which the Holy Spirit is involved in our worship is by opening our hearts and our minds to grasp the truth of God's Word, to to apprehend the truth of God's Word, to apply the truth of God's Word to our lives so that we can properly respond to that truth. It's one of the main things that the Spirit is doing in our corporate worship. Look back at John 14. John 14. After introducing the soon coming Spirit, Jesus says this about His ministry. Verse 26. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will teach you all things. Now, by this, Jesus is not saying that the Holy Spirit is going to impart to us all the complexities and abstractions of of higher level mathematics. He's not going to sort of supernaturally impart to you understanding of, you know, how to fix your lawnmower uh, when you're halfway through and it breaks down. He's not teaching you all things in that sense. What, what What he's talking about there, he's going to teach us all things that we need to know about Christ about His person and about His work. He'll give us understanding about His death and His resurrection and His ascension. And He'll lead us to understand the implications of those things for our lives. The implications of Christ's work for how God views us. The implications of Christ's work for our acceptance before God. The implications of Christ's work for our attempts to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's going to show us the the contours of the gospel. He's going to show us the entailments of the gospel. He's going to show us the glorious truths of the gospel. That's what he does. Now, this has primary application to the apostles because he does say, I'm going to bring to you remembrance all that I said to you. And so what is really in view here implicitly is the soon-to-be-formed canon. But certainly this has secondary implications. Application to us as well. The Holy Spirit lives in us as well, doesn't He? He will bring to our remembrance the words of Scripture that we have learned. And as importantly, He will lead us into a deeper grasp of the truths of God's Word so that our minds can be renewed, as Romans 12 says, so that our perspectives can be shaped, so that our understanding can be deepened, so that our faith can be strengthened, so that our worship can be fueled by those things. In chapter 16, later in the discourse, we see a similar thing. Look over at 16. Jesus further outlines the Spirit's work, including His his convicting work of of non-believers. And then He says this in verse 12. But I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, But whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus, he's worked hard. He's done his best to prepare them for all that is to come. Uh, But he realizes, you know what? This is all you can take. I have stretched you to the bounds of your your ability to, to, to absorb all that I'm saying. But the helper's going to come. And the helper, 
The Holy Spirit is, it falls to the Holy Spirit to complete the revelation. To complete the revelation of Christ. He will guide them into all the truth. More revelation was necessary to, to unfold the glorious significance of who Jesus is. To unfold the glorious significance of what Jesus was about to do. And, and paramount, uh, paramount about this was the gospel. Verse 14, he will, look what he says. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's going to take what is Jesus and declare it to you. All that revolves around who Jesus is. All that revolves, and I know I've been unable to attend any sessions, but I've been sort of keeping tabs, and I know uh, Dr. Ware is a wonderful man. I'm so grateful he's here. He's one of my professors, actually, a number of years ago. I know he's been unpacking these sorts of things. Well, he is just... He is, he is just telling you what... He's extending the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave us all that in His Word. He, he completed the revelation. He unfolded the significance. And even as Dr. Ware was speaking, he was being operated on, and in his past study has been operated on, by the Holy Spirit so that he could grasp those things. And as you sought to absorb those, and as your, your heart welled up in excitement about those, and as last night, as I understand, everyone was just poised to worship, and so the band came back up, and everyone entered passionately into worship based on the truth of God's Word. you know what's happening? The helper is doing his job. Without the helper, you'd have checked out on Dr. Ware before he even started. Without the helper, if you were polite enough to sort of hang around, you'd have looked at him like he was crazy. You'd have written him off as some egghead. No, you would not. Your hearts would not have welled up in wonder, praise. That's the work of the Spirit. So what we're talking about, you've you experienced many times, I know, but you, you specifically experienced it throughout this conference. All true worship, listen, all true worship is at base a response to God. We generate no worship on our own. All worship is a response to what God has revealed to be true about Himself. It is only, is only as we, we grasp the truth of God's Word and especially the truth of the Gospel that we can respond appropriately with authentic worship. Otherwise, what we will be giving God is a response based upon our own vain imaginations, based upon the, our own idols that our hearts, our sinful hearts, have generated. That's, uh, that's idolatry. That's why false worship was not commended. God was not this broad God. Well, you know, at least these false worshipers, you know, at least they're worshiping. You know, at least they're thinking about God, you know. They're not just sort of building up money. They, they really love. No, false worship was an abomination because it was based on people's own ideas about God and driven by people's own desires. The prayer of the wicked is an abomination to God. It's not just kind of, oh, that's a nice attempt. No, because it arises out of it arises out of idolatry. All true worship is a response to God's revelation. You know that verse, Colossians 3.16, I'm sure you do if you've studied worship. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly. Do you know the verse? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing spiritual psalms and hymns and songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. You see the connection. It is as a result of the gospel that the word of Christ, in other words, the word concerning Christ, the word about all that Jesus is and has done, in other words, the gospel, it it is as the gospel dwells in you richly, in other words, with understanding and and adoration and, 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 and a cherishing of the truths of the gospel, when that dwells richly in us, there is a result. And the result will be singing. The result will be psalms and hymns and spiritual songs coming forth, elicited by the truth of God's word as the Holy Spirit illumines it. And God is glorified. The Holy Spirit does his job to shine a spotlight on Jesus. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Nothing brings more glory to our exalted Lord Jesus than for his followers to become steeped in all truth concerning him. The acquisition of this knowledge, though intellectual, meaning involving the mind, is not merely intellectual. As God's truth is truly absorbed by believers, it transforms them enabling them to reflect the Lord's glory and therefore bring praise to His name. Glory comes to Jesus as the truths of the gospel are established in the lives of man. I love that. Glory comes to Jesus as the truths of the gospel are established in the lives of men. And it is a primary function of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds with the gospel, with the truth of God's word. That's why Paul prays this, this wonderful Trinitarian prayer in, in Ephesians 1, uh, 17, right around there. He, he says that the, he, and he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having your, the eyes of your heart enlightened. And so you've got God, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, may give you a spirit. In other words, that the spirit may come and open the eyes of your heart to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you can understand what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, all of which are recapitulation of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, as Paul outlines all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the fruit of the gospel. It's all about the blessings that come in the wake of the gospel in our lives. That's why we're so concerned to have biblically rich content in our songs. Our goal in worship is not to rouse anyone's emotions by songs. Our goal is to meditate on God's truth. Our goal is to perceive rightly God's character and work. Our goal is to behold our our, our Savior clearly in His glory. And then in response to that encounter with truth, to have deep and authentic affections towards God, to, to acknowledge His, greatness to, his greatness, to to joyously proclaim His excellencies. The Spirit makes it possible. Now, a way of 
application. Two quick points here. First of all, um, those of us involved in corporate worship, worship leading, must be careful not to stray from this truth-centeredness, if you will, of worship. There, there can be a temptation to drift from this focus on glorying in, celebrating the truths of God's Word as they bring God's presence close to us through the Spirit. It can be a temptation to move on from the Gospel, to move on from the Bible, to drift into the novel or the spectacular or the unusual or the flashy or the faddish. In some settings, worship is, is specifically modified to, to limit the intrusion of truth or theology or content to make it more palatable to non-believers. Now, it's not that nothing unusual should ever happen in worship, nor should we be oblivious to how we're perceived by non-believers in our midst. It's just that those things should not be our focus. Those things should not preoccupy us. The content of our worship is to be anchored in the truth of Scripture. The content of our worship is to be anchored in the Gospel. Because it's that truth. See, the Holy Spirit does not promise to give you any any affections not related to truth. He only promises to bring the truth. He only promises to illuminate the truth. It is only the truth of God's Word that the Holy Spirit will attend with understanding and with appropriate affections. It's that truth, it's the Spirit working that will draw forth worship out of our hearts. Second point, just of application, quickly. Rooting our worship in the truth of God's Word positions people for biblical experience. We're not pitting truth-centered worship against experience, against thrilling worship, against worship that takes your breath away. We're We're not pitting those two things. Uh, experience itself is not our goal in worship, but the Holy Spirit's illuminating work positions people for experience that is biblical and that is God-glorifying. The the best worship leaders, and and you know all this, I'm sure, but the best worship leaders I know, they, they do much more than arrange music. They do much more than get musicians together. They They give themselves to reminding and reiterating and reviewing God's love as revealed in the Savior's sacrifice. They don't simply exhort people. Come on, sing like you really mean it. No, they help people. They help people follow Robert Murray McShane's counsel to take ten looks at Christ at every one look at themselves. Worship is... Worship is a means of being convinced once again, as Paul says in Galatians 2, that Christ loved me, that he delivered himself up for me. Worship is what a blessed time, what a blessed opportunity for us to be reminded Christ loved me, he delivered himself up for me. 
And so worship is a constant review of the truth of God's word. It's a constant review of the indicatives of the gospel. It's not that there's not exhortations. It's not that there's not exhortations to sanctification. It's not that sometimes the Holy Spirit will lead us to to respond in repentance, things like that. It's just that those things have to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. In our pride, we have the tendency to legalism. Uh, we have the we are vulnerable to condemnation. You, we are vulnerable to attempts at self atonement. Uh, worship helps us battle this. As, as a worship leader, you can just assume that that is true about the people standing before you. They are vulnerable to condemnation. They are prone to seek acceptance before God, apart from God's provision. That they are prone to try to atone for themselves. That that's the battle that the people standing before you are facing every week in some form or fashion. Just assume that. Just assume that. And you can be in faith then that as the gospel is celebrated, people will experience the active presence of God. The Holy Spirit will come and reveal the presence of Jesus. He will mediate God's presence and he will create biblical experiences he will do things like having the spirit fill our hearts you remember uh, romans 8 and galatians 4 because we are sons god has sent forth the spirit in our hearts cry the spirit of a son into our hearts crying abba father as we review the gospel as we worship god saturated in truth people will experience that ministry of the spirit even a non-charismatic like j.i packer I can describe this beautifully. The spirit-given certainty of being loved, redeemed, and adopted through Christ into the Father's family so as to be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ makes gratitude, delight, hope, and confidence, in a word, assurance, blossom in believers' hearts. The inward coming of the Son, he refers to the verse, the inward coming of the Son and the Father that Jesus promised in John 14 takes place through the Spirit and its effect is to intensify assurance. Listen to this non-charismatic. By these phenomena of experience, Spirit-given knowledge of Christ's presence, elusive, intangible, unpredictable, untamed, inaccessible to empirical verification, outwardly invisible, but inwardly irresistible, to borrow a phrase, shows itself. That's what the Spirit's illuminating work will do. It will position people to encounter God in ways that glorify God. So the first way the Spirit reveals the reality and presence of Christ for the glory of Christ is through illumination. Second way, second way he reveals and exalts Jesus in our worship is edification. Edification. Now, I want to turn quickly to a different text here. I want to, uh, uh, probably to many of us, a familiar text, 1 Corinthians 12. As you're turning there, remember the context, context of chapters 12 to 14, actually the end of chapter 11 through 14 is the gathered assembly, corporate worship. And it's in this context that Paul takes up the subject of spiritual gifts, which immediately spring to mind when you think about the Holy Spirit and worship. Well, certainly this is going to be about spiritual gifts. Well, it enters in. 
Verse 1, chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, Paul teaches, another way that the Holy Spirit is involved in our corporate worship is through the giving of gifts that can be uniquely in operation in our corporate gatherings. That's the context here. Although the gifts that he lists transcend the corporate gathering, they can be uniquely expressed in the corporate gathering, certain of the gifts. And in these gatherings, the purpose of this is expressed in verse 7. The purpose of these gifts, for the common good. For the common good. Now, we learn what the common good is in chapter 14. So look over chapter 14, verse 1. The common good becomes something else in chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, or translation may have edification, it's the same word, upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up or edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than one who speaks in the tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. You get the point. <laughs> uh, four times in verses three, four times in three verses, four times in verses three through five, some form of the word edify, either edification or the verb edify, appears. Edify, edify, edify. In fact, I, I read, I, th- I think the proper way to read verse three is that one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification. And then the way they edify is a building or encouragement. I don't think there are three parallel. Edification is the, the broad, and then those other two are specific. That's Paul's thrust throughout this entire chapter. And then we see that when he sums up in verse 12. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in the edification of the church, the, the building up of the church. And again in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done, all things be done for building up or edification. Now, uh, I want you to stick with me here. Unfortunately, so much teaching on spiritual gifts focuses on whether the gifts have ceased or identifying your spiritual gift or infatuation with the gifts or criticizing those who abuse the gifts. I mean, that, that's typically what all the teaching about gifts uh, you know, deals with. What is rarely recognized, in fact, hardly ever recognized, I think, is the fundamental nature of spiritual gifts. I want to show you something. Turn over to chapter 1. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 1. At the beginning of the letter, while you're turning, at the beginning of the letter, Paul gives his customary greetings, as he does in all his letters, and his thanksgiving to God for the addressees of the letter. Let's look at the content of Paul's thanksgiving for them. So, chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched 
in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's amazing that the primary thing Paul thanks God for for them is their spiritual gifts. Considering all the abuse of their gifts and all the trouble they gave Paul, it's amazing that Paul starts off saying, hey, I'm just so glad you've got all these spiritual gifts. Um, But what is striking, what is striking here is the Christ-centeredness of the gifts. Verse 4, grace of which the gifts are an expression, is given to them where? In Christ Jesus. Verse 5, in Him they were enriched in all speech and knowledge. And speech and knowledge, they're shorthand for the gifts. In Him they were enriched in all speech and knowledge. Verse 6, the, the gifts testify, the gifts testify to their acceptance of the gospel, the testimony about Christ, the testimony of Christ. Verse 7, the gifts are associated with a period during which they wait for the revealing of Christ. Verse 8, it, in this period in which they're uh, experiencing the gifts, it is Christ who sustains them to the end and will present them guiltless on the basis of his finished work. Do you, do you see what's happening there? It's Christ. It's in Him. It's Lord Jesus Christ. It's Lord Jesus Christ. Over and over and over, it's Christ. Far too often, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is divorced from 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 7. The gifts are indeed manifestations of the Spirit, but more fundamentally, they are attached to Christ. They are given in Christ. They are enrichments in Christ. They flow from the gospel of Christ. That's what Paul is saying there. All these gifts you have that the Spirit gives, they're in Christ. You receive them by virtue of being in Christ. It's Christ who gives them to you. In other words, it's the gifts are the continuation of the ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Do you see? They're not just divorced from the gospel. We got the gospel now. Let's move in gifts. They're not just your personal possessions. They're, they're, not, they're not just expressions of your personality. No, they are they're closely attached, inextricably bound with Jesus Christ and the gospel about him. That's why they edify. For, for Paul, edification does not mean some vague feeling of uplifting that anyone can experience. No, look at Ephesians 4, uh, verse 12 and 16. For Paul, it is on, the only way anyone can be edified, in Paul's manner of speaking, is in Christ. Edification involves growing in the knowledge of Christ, deepening in one's relationship to Christ, being built up in Christ. That's what edification is in Paul. That's why the gifts edify, because their intention is to deepen our relationship with Christ. To increase our experience of Christ. Does that make sense? That should be our perspective on the spiritual gifts. They contribute to our glorying in the Son of God. As people are exposed to God's truth through spoken gifts. As people experience God's care through serving gifts, as they become aware of God's presence. It's one of the wonderful things about the prophetic gift. You know, prophecy is given. And 
And it's so specific. And it's all of a sudden you become very aware. I am not just an observer here. I am being observed by God. And you and he and he communicates his care. You, you realize he knows me. He knows what's going on in my heart. He cares for me. Jesus continues to minister as the Holy Spirit gives gifts that build up the body in Christ Jesus. part of the Spirit's ministry, to reveal the reality and the presence of Christ for the glory of Christ. Finally, and very briefly, third way the Spirit reveals and glorifies Christ in worship, exaltation. Exaltation. Last verse we'll look at, a familiar one, Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Ephesians 5, verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Now, translations often obscure this, but the way this verse reads, there is one imperative, actually a negative and a positive, but the, the one imperative to be filled with the Spirit is then followed by five results of that filling. Be filled with the, with the Spirit, and the results will be uh, addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, submitting. Those are the results of being filled with the Spirit. Now, three of those results have to do with expressions of praise, don't they? Addressing one another in psalms, singing, and making melody in your heart. One effect of the Spirit in our worship, one effect of the Spirit in our lives, is to stimulate expressions of praise. Be filled with the Spirit and the inevitable outflow of that filling, the inevitable outflow of the Holy Spirit in your heart will be singing the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel illuminated by the Holy Spirit is, is, is not thinking and discussing and meditating is not enough. We've got to sing about that truth. Our minds can't contain it. Our hearts have to express it. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We cannot help but sing. That's one reason why we sing. God has so made us. He's so constituted. You know, we're not like, you know, Rodin's thinker. Remember that? No, that's an aspect of us. We, that, that sculpture says many things, but it doesn't sum up humanity. He, he's made us to think. He's made us to ponder. But maybe we could put beside that a statue of the worshiper. 
Because God has also made us, and I think more fundamentally, He has made us worshipers. When we're filled by the Spirit, when the Spirit reveals the reality of Jesus, who He is, what He's done, creating faith that He'll be all of that for us in particular, and creates a sense of His nearness, He's here, He loves me, He's close, He's aware, He's listening to my prayer, He's waiting on my prayer, He's delighting some inexplicable way. He delights in my praise. When the Holy Spirit does that, Christ is glorified. That's what the Holy Spirit does in our corporate worship. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we have been speaking of your work. Spirit, we have experienced your activity over these few days. We ask you to, even now, to do what you've promised to do, to reveal the reality of our Lord Jesus. To us in all, all the wonderful manifestations of his person and his work. We ask you to drive home to our hearts what he has done for us and our relationship to God because of what he has done for us. We ask you, Lord, to We ask you, Spirit, to make us aware of your nearness. You promise us in your word, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You invite us, Lord, in Hebrews 10 to draw near in full assurance of faith. Tell us in Hebrews 12 that when we do worship, we we are coming into your very presence. Oh, Lord, can it be? That's a frightening thought to come into your presence. Were it not for the fact that we come invited, we come on the basis of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we come. We respond to your invitation. And, Spirit, I invite you now to do a powerful work of revealing to our minds and our hearts our Savior. Reveal to us his nearness. And, Lord, Create in our hearts appropriate affections that please you. Appropriate affections that exalt you. Create in our hearts loving and trusting and marveling and cherishing for our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Jeff Perswell, which was given at the 2004 Worship God Conference. It has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries, Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planning and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.sovereigngraceministries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.